0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, the British Parliament has seen the last of that wild shock of shaggy blonde hair, for now at least, from Prime Minister to... Well, how exactly will Boris Johnson evolve after his scandal plagued three years at the helm? Last week, he left the hallowed halls of power following a parliamentary inquiry investigating whether he misled the House of Commons. So is it all over Red Rover for one of the most controversial political figures in modern history? Hi, Natasha Mitchell with Big Ideas, an event hot off the stage of the York Festival of Ideas today, a robust, riveting insider account of the sudden rise, the off chaotic governance, the headline-grabbing stunts, the lockdown soirees, yes, all of it, and ultimately the steep fall of Boris Johnson. Johnson was celebrated by some as a saviour of their country and the British Conservative Party. And he certainly got Brexit done, didn't he, for better or worse. But in three short years, now he's out. And in a new book, The Fall of Boris Johnson, Sebastian Payne, former Whitehall editor of the Financial Times, is going to take you behind the scenes of the scandals, miscalculations, the mistakes that led to Johnson's downfall. Sebastian's now director of the think tank Onward, And he got unparalleled access to those surrounding the former PM. Joan Concannon, co-founding director of the York Festival of Ideas, is starting this conversation by asking him how he identified the sources and decided who to trust.
1: The most difficult element, apart from having to write 85,000 words in a month, was bringing together all the accounts. And Mm. some of you may have realised that uh, in Boris Johnson world, not everybody tells the truth. A lot of the time and so when you've got a lot of different accounts you're trying to bring them together and there were a handful of points that the accounts were so disparate either someone was deluded off the head had an agenda combination of all three and the key thing about a political journalist you've got to decide Why is someone telling me this? Mm -hmm. What is their motivation? What do you think is the actual truth here? And that's a very hard thing to do. And when you're doing newspapers, you have to decide that every day in a space of a few hours. In a book, it's a sort of a bit more stand back. And I know my book won't be the last book about Boris Johnson. There'll be plenty more, including The Great Man's Tome Himself, which will come out at some point. And I'm sure his advance will be exactly the same as mine. And... um, (laughs) so what i tried to do is um philip graham who is the famous editor of the washington post said you know journalism is the first draft of history yes. which is an incredibly self-serving thing to say and justifies a lot of errors within journalism but this book i feel really was a first draft of history i tried to capture the frantic frenzy of those nine months when it went from the point of having that 80 seat majority the tories riding high until him out of downing street and his political career seemingly over
2: So that moves us then to, one of the things that always strikes me, and I'm certainly not the only person who has made this observation, is that the Conservative Party seemed so surprised about the Johnson style of government, a sort of constant electioneering stance with fairly obvious and major gaps around attention to detail and policy implementation to follow up on one or other slogan. What were your observations about the way that the relationship went from that amazing election victory that where were the kind of touch points where the party started to really think about what the consequences of how they had chosen him as leader?
1: So, if we cast our mind back to the uh, the halcyon days of Theresa May's premiership, when she was trying to relentlessly pass a Brexit deal, you know the fact is the Conservative Party thought it might be on the verge of extinction. That it had come fifth in the European elections that year, and essentially she tried three times to pass her withdrawal agreement. It didn't work, and she was then ousted as leader. And I think the reason Boris Johnson became Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister. Was because of that moment Mm -hmm. it was because the party could not see a way outside the Brexit deadlock it had just come fifth in national elections Nigel Farage's Brexit party was riding high and at that point it turned to someone who by his own measure is a more unconventional conservative leader who had obviously led the Brexit campaign had been mayor of London because he had something that his rival at that time Jeremy Hunt did not have and I think It's interesting to try and think about what other circumstances he could have become Conservative Party leader. And I think, you know, the fact was he became leader to, as the three-word slogan was, get Brexit done. And that was the point about why he became it at that moment. But Dominic Cummings said to somebody soon after the 2019 election, they said, what's the plan now? You know, we've got Brexit done, now what? And he went, mm -hmm." And that that was kind of how we ended up, that we'd got to this situation that the whole first stage of the Johnson government was about getting Brexit done. Then it was kind of like, well, what's next? And obviously, Mr Cummings tried to fulfill it with his vision for reforming the state, for science and tech, for all those sorts of things. But then of course, obviously, we very soon hit COVID um, in early 2020. And from that point onwards, any plans that existed for government were out the window because you obviously had COVID, we had the war for Ukraine. But I think in some ways, the original sin of this was he became leader with one purpose. That purpose was fulfilled and it wasn't clear what the sort of the purpose of his government was beyond that
2: so that's very interesting because it segues into my next question which is precisely about the handling of covid and how much they had to deal with that intensely pressurized environment but the key element in all that is the relationship between cummings and johnson and talk me through what you think johnson's motivations were for bringing cummings in in the first place
1: so two weeks before Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and it was clear he was going to win the leadership contest, he sat around in his front room with a whole bunch of seasoned Conservative Party advisers saying, OK, we've told everyone we're going to break the Brexit deadlock, how do we do it? And they all sat there and came up with ideas and they were all, to use uh, the technical term, crap. So they made this big election promise of getting Brexit done, then it was kind of like, what now? And eventually, someone in Johnson's very close to him turned to him and said, if this happens, you are going to be the shortest ever lived Prime Minister, and clearly not foreseeing the Liz Trust triumph that was to come later. <laughs> um, but basically said, you know, you've got to think of some way of breaking this deadlock because don't forget at that point, Theresa May had tried to pass a Brexit deal three times. You had Parliament had taken control of the executive by the, the series of acts. The Ben Act was one of them. There was all these sort of mm. double bower things that sounded like 70s rock bands, you know, like the Ben Cooper, Cole's whatever act that kept extending the Brexit deadline and the executive had no power and there was no way out of it. And eventually, somebody said to boris johnson you're going to have to send for dom because he's the only person with the tenacity the drive uh, and also the craziness to do the unthinkable to get us out of this situation because otherwise we're going to either have a second referendum and in johnson's inner circle that was seen as a potentially a very bad thing because it would have gone back on the first referendum and could have created a really bad populist force um, and also would have put the whole Brexit." project to the side which is what they existed to do so at this point boris johnson goes around to see dom at his house and that's very important the future prime minister is going to the house of the advisor not the other way around and says to him dom i need you to come do this he says absolutely no way the whole situation's rubbish you're crackers i'm crackers the whole thing's crackers basically (laughs) and eventually he persuades him to come and do this. And it's not quite begging, but it's saying, look, I can't get any way out of this Brexit mess. I need you to come and help me. And Dom set two conditions. Number one, he reported directly to the Prime Minister but would not take the traditional title of Chief of Staff. And number two, he would be able to hire and fire all government special advisers. And SPADs, who I'm sure you've all read about in the newspapers, are politically appointed advisers. They're temporary civil servants, but they are political because Mm -hmm. they're not in. and they wield huge control over their ministers and Whitehall departments. And so that was unheard of, to have a senior person, both of those things. Ultimately, both men thought they were superior to the other. Boris Johnson had obviously won, went on to win this election victory, and as we've heard in recent days, he thinks the 14 million people mandate is all on him, despite um, us not being a presidential country, but he feels that. Dominic Cummings feels he was the strategic genius that broke the Brexit deadlock, got it done, and won the 2019 election. And the pair never resolved that tension. And then obviously when we came to covid Those tensions were there again, that Boris Johnson wanted maximum freedom. Dominic Cummings wanted maximum control. And as he told a parliamentary select committee, he actually said, you know, in a situation like this, you actually want some kind of dictator to run the country who can make decisions. That was his view on how it should do it, not Boris Johnson, who once stood in a cabinet meeting when everyone was just shouting at each other. And he turned to Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, and said, oh, it's fantastic. It's just like a spectator editorial meeting, to which someone had to remind him (laughs) this is actually a G7 country we're running now, not a magazine. So I think that was the core of the tension. And ultimately, that manifested through COVID and it came to the famous clash when, over a very silly debate about who was going to be the Downing Street Press Secretary, Dominic Cummings and his crew wanted one person, Boris Johnson and his crew wanted another, and the whole thing fell apart. He left and has obviously uh, decided to try and take him down at every opportunity since then.
2: The guts of the book, the heart of the book, are what you describe as the three Ps, and I'm not going to take them in chronological order for a reason I'll come on to. But I wanted to start with Partygate, because ultimately when those kind of stories break, there's a sort of performative element between the media and when they decide that enough is enough, we're going to break a story. The kind of drinking culture that you described early on in the book, and and I think you, you used the reference Wine Friday, so were there rumours swirling around before Pippa Carr broke the story about how much partying was going on? Or was it genuinely a huge shock to everybody? Because drinking cultures in Westminster are fairly well known. Was it really realistic to assume people working under incredibly pressurised environments weren't also letting off steam at various points? Or was it genuinely a shock?
1: One thing here is worth saying about political journalism, and um, having done this for 12 years, I think one thing that's often misconstrued from the, out from the reader's perspective is, stories very rarely come to you on a plate. I mean, I could count on one hand where someone's run over an ear, yeah, got a nice story for you, here it is, and gives you the figurative version of a brown paper envelope. You know, That does not happen. You piece together, bit by bit, here and there of things, until you eventually feel you're confident enough in what you're getting. On the thing about Downing Street and all that and you mentioned Westminster, drinking culture. I mean, the fact is, Westminster, unlike pretty much every other profession, you can call it that, is you know, the mix between personal and professional is so interlocking that you just do not see that in other kinds of work. That politics is about personal relationships and it's all reliant on trust. It's all reliant on one-to-one bonds. And that means in Westminster that you know, from you're not sitting in an office like norm, like I say normal people, but you know, the rest of the country operates. You are is a lot more socializing, and that does bleed into dinners, and that does bleed into pubs, and that does bleed into bars plus you've got the whole concept of power around that that does mean again people are you know sort of trying to exchange views trying to build themselves up and it's a very particular and a very potent mix that can be um very powerful but it can also be toxic as we've seen in all manner of stories in in recent years about um people having misdemeanors in the palace of westminster with regards to in the wine time Fridays, i mean that before parting it that was not something i'd ever heard mm. of i mean i'm not surprised because of the background of that culture, but it was not something that was there. My personal view on the party gate thing is, and everyone will have their own different views on this, is that people who are working, as you said, in a very high pressure environment, trying to navigate their way through the worst pandemic in a generation. And don't forget, you know, when people see Downing Street, They don't know four to five hundred people work there it's a sort of tardis like building and goes way down and way back so you've got a lot of people in there a lot of them had to work there and at the time as which we were all home they were forced to be there for national security reasons for all for all that kind of stuff and i don't begrudge people having a glass of wine at the end of their desk in a distance way but there's a big gap between that And having a reinforced suitcase that you take to a shop (laughs) to put wine in and then have a hundred and forty pound wine fridge brought in like I think any reasonable person can see a difference between those two things the real question is what in that gap what happened that allowed things to change and ultimately I think the conclusion I came to in the book was it is about culture and it is about leadership and obviously you can lead to your own conclusions where and what that happened I mean if you think about Theresa May when she was prime minister you know could you imagine her doing any of that very different to boris johnson
2: it's only true to say the one time i've been in downing street i wouldn't have thought the place was well insulated so um if you're having a whoop-up in the garden i can't understand how nobody would have heard it so moving on then to the handling of party gate because as always when something goes um belly up communications teams come in for some serious amounts of stick. And your book depicts various of your sources talking about how rubbish the messaging, the control of the messaging, the way the communications handling of dealing with the first break of the story and then the escalation, that there were so many moving parts that it just constantly felt like an operation that was trying to catch up with what on earth was going on. Um, Do you want to talk a bit about your impressions about how that Downing Street operation really started to fracture at that point.
1: There is a certain mentality around Boris Johnson, which is just getting through the next day, getting through the next thing, and that creates a potentially very short-termist View and you could say a lot of that's due to the covid pandemic that obviously every day they were facing new threats new problems new issues and i think that permeated into different levels of the government at that time Mm -hmm. so when the first party gate storyline as i chart in the book that essentially pippa career rings up and says you know i've got this story i've written that, that, that original story says Uh, You know, this event happened and, you know, there were many other events and the rules weren't followed, all that sort of thing. Jack Doyle, who is the Prime Minister's press secretary, goes in to see him. And they have this conversation where Jack Doyle says, look, you know, Pippa's come with this story. What are we going to say? The pair of them have this exchange where the prime minister, the the then prime minister, said to Jack Doyle, "You know, were any rules broken?" And Jack Doyle goes, "Uh, "No, I don't think so." They go, "Right. Well, okay, we deny it then." At that point, nobody had any investigation into what happened. At that moment, they just basically not waited. They sort of jumped headfirst into quicksand Mm -hmm. uh, that continued to subsume them over the coming weeks and months there were several moments where they like could have grabbed a rope and pulled themselves out and i revealed in the book that in the christmas that year there was a debate about whether they should uh, have a sort of a reset where boris johnson would have sat down with i don't know laura coonsberg or whoever and been like look it was a very high-profile situation we got stuff wrong stuff happened that should not have happened we are sorry and, and we're going to fully investigate I think if they'd done that, mm-hmm. there would have been a lot more sympathy from people who could have said, okay, you know, we, we can understand that, and you have shown real contrition. But instead, it was this continual, and of course, the famous line that's created all the issue went from that first Pippa Queerist story there were no rules were broken and the guidelines was followed at all times and that was the line that went to the mirror that went into the red box that went to the dispatch box that went on and on and on and so there were all these moments that line could have been amended or there could have been a mere copa. if they'd done that i think the whole party gate they could have ended very differently but it didn't and well you now know where we are
2: yeah the, the fresh rule of thumb is if you've got something wrong God's sakes, don't try and double down on it. That that leads to a kind of codicil question around generally that one of the themes of the book is is the broader sense of an operation within Downing Street that was constantly firefighting, constantly behind the curve. And actually under three different leaderships, as it were. So you've got the kind of the Cummings era, but then you've got Dan Rosenfeld, then Steve Barclay. But to some degree, there was a failure all the way along around being able to present a coherent professional operation. Do you think that is because, as some have said, the culture led from the top, that they were working with information that wasn't always very solid?
1: So I think by the time Boris Johnson had become prime minister, a lot of his most ardent supporters had gone off to do other things. So if you think about when he was mayor of London, I still maintain that in his... In terms of mayor of London, he was actually very successful, mm. but not at first. When he first became mayor, it was basically a complete car crash, and it wasn't until a fellow called Sir Simon Milton became chief of staff that he managed to get an operation that created what worked for him, which was the chairman of the board, the communicator, the grand vision, and then you had Eddie Lister and Simon Milton who ran City Hall, basically. That was the model they wanted to replicate in Downing Street, but they chose Dominic Cummings, and as we've talked about, that came with some uh, complications, shall we say, in terms of personalities. So I think ultimately with his Downing Street operation, all the people I interviewed when I was doing this book all agreed there were clear mistakes. There were things that could and should have been better. And I think, you know, people very close to the prime minister agreed that, but partly because they were really, since COVID, the whole thing was on the back foot.
2: The second P in all of this, Farrago, is the Owen Paterson situation. I had to drag my memory back as so much has happened.
1: I know you and me both. Since Owen
2: Paterson. So remind our audience, talk us through the whys and the wherefores briefly, but more generally your impressions of why Johnson was so determined to back him in the first place when
1: there was clearly a major issue. So Owen Paterson had been a Conservative MP since 1997 for North Shropshire, a very safe Conservative part of the country. Quite tub-thumping in his views. (laughs) He was a Eurosceptic. Uh, a traditional conservative in many respects. And after he became a minister, Mr. Patton started engaging, working for two companies. One is Randox, and if you remember the COVID tests that we all did endlessly. But then he also had, he worked for Lynn's Country Food, uh, which produced bacon in Northern Ireland. And um, so, you know, where he was doing that while also being an MP and he earned, I think it was well over, £200,000 from these companies while also Moonlighting as the MP for North Shropshire Um, and ultimately this all came to a head when the parliamentary authorities investigated this and they essentially said that he had broke lobbying rules and um, one very sad caveat is that this investigation went on a long time, that Patterson's wife, Rose, committed suicide um, during the investigation into his conduct. So the whole situation was very, very sad, particularly sad because I think if Mr Patterson again had said, I messed up, I should have been more transparent, I'm sorry, things could have gone different, but he didn't. He insisted he did nothing wrong. And the House of Commons Standards Committee had said that Mr. Patterson should be suspended for 30 days, which, and this is a very relevant technicality point to where we are now, mm-hmm. if you're suspended for more, how many days? 10. Very good, very good. You've all been watching news tonight. And what happens after 10 days? It's a 10-day suspension, which is followed by a recall petition. And if you get 10% of the signatures, then there's a by-election. And then the same thing would have happened with Owen Paterson. You were suspended for 30 days, then it would have been a potential recall petition, and you need to get 10% of voters. and to be honest, you, know, it, you just get every sort of Labour Party, Lib Dem, Green Party, um, monster raving loony party, and that will get you over the 10% threshold. Anyway, the feeling was, you can take two views on this. Number one is that this guy had lost his political career, probably gonna stand down from parliament, his wife had committed suicide. Had he gone through enough at this point? That was the view of Jacob Rees Mogg, who was then uh, leader of the House of Commons, the Chief Whip, Mark Spencer, and Declan Lyons, who was the Prime Minister's political secretary. So their view was this guy had gone through enough. Do we really need to drag him through all this? The other view is that Boris Johnson had had a couple of brushes with the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner himself, you know, sort of. Wallpaper gate, we all remember that, every gate suffix you can imagine. And you could see the sort of the glint of being, well, hang on a minute, maybe we could solve this problem and help Owen at the same time. So they decide to do this absolutely ludicrous ruse, which is to scrap the whole system of parliamentary standards, sorry, have a commission to examine scrapping (laughs) the whole system of parliamentary standards that would then decide whether this should work. And their argument for that was there was no recourse, that if you're doubt a punishment there's no recourse and that's not fair now remember when i got the message from downing street that was sent out via whatsapp because in westminster it's always on whatsapp and um, that said you know we that we are going to put forward this motion to have a committee to examine parliamentary standards instead of voting to do in patterson thing and the, the gut reaction of conservative mps was obvious which is this is not going to wash because it looks like, right or wrongly, you're changing the whole system of standards to help your mate. And there is no kind of more straightforward thing you could say to voters than that, that you're changing the system to help this guy. And at that point, Conservative MPs, their inboxes start to flood saying, you know, what are you doing? You're scrapping the system. it's completely clear. And at that point, they have to do a full-scale U-turn, can the whole thing. Owen Paterson then eventually resigns. There's a by-election, and North Shropshire goes Lib Dem for the first time ever. So, I mean, well done everyone. What a great bit of political strategy that was. But I think what that event did was, and that's why I started the book with this P before Mm. we moved on to Partygate, is, Conservative MPs had sort of felt they'd backed Boris Johnson because he was a winner, because he'd got Brexit done, they'd won the 2019 election, but there'd been um, some turbulence, shall we say, with the you know, the rise and fall of the Dominic Cummings era, the kind of all the drama, the constant drama. But they tolerated it because they felt he was a winner. But at that point, it broke. The link between MPs and number 10 broke, and it was never Repaired. And that's why Patterson is so important to this story, because then you go into Partygate, and again, if there'd been a bit more goodwill, things could have been different. That was the point at which it, the bond was broken.
2: Well, let's move to that third P, therefore, the um, interestingly named Chris Pincher, which might be regarded as the straw and camel part of this whole saga. Again, what seems so astonishing is the Johnsonian approach of hiring people who then it turns out have major skeletons in their cupboards but rather than admitting basically doubles down and tries to hang on to or ignore a kind of whole furore and
1: everyone's left going what what
2: does he see in this guy that he's still hanging on to and trying to retain
1: him. Ultimately, one of the things that was highlighted to me for people who worked very closely with Mr. Johnson is his character judgment, and that this seems to be a consistent flaw in the people he puts trust and authority and power in. And this goes throughout his career, and if he had maybe chosen different people, it could have turned out very differently. So, the background to Chris Pincher and to your point, you know, and... He, you know, Dominic Cummings alleged that Boris Johnson had gone round Downing Street saying "Pincher by name, Pincher by nature," which, I mean, again, hints to your point of. You know, if if you if that's what you're saying, is that really the sort of person you want to make your deputy chief whip? So Chris Pincher becomes deputy chief whip in February 2022. So at this point, we've gone through Patterson, we've gone through Partygate, we've gone through the first iteration of waiting for Sue Gray, which I mean, I can't wait for a play which will be a sort of updated version of Waiting for Godot because I feel like the whole of this society, whether it's for her report or for her to become chief of staffs Labour Party, just waiting for Sue Gray the whole time. Time. Chris Pincher had a check as it had a checkered history and this may go to your point of was this really the best person for this role he was assistant chief whip under Theresa May he was suspended on an investigation into allegations by Alex Storey who was a um, a former Olympic rower who had wanted to become a conservative candidate and had been invited up to Chris Pinter's hotel room and had discovered he'd walked in and he was wearing nothing but a bathrobe and he described him as a pound up Harvey Weinstein at this point so he was suspended and there was this investigation and he was cleared and then came back and was promoted to Deputy Chief Whip at this point. So, and then under Boris Johnson, he'd been Housing Minister... And he'd also been at the Foreign Office under Boris Johnson. And then eventually they'd come to this point, point. and the one thing people said about Mr. Pincher is that he had a very good knack for dealing with MPs. And they were really in a hole by this point, and so they needed for someone. The people around Boris Johnson had said, you know, we need to send for Pincher because he knows the MPs, he loves and lives Parliament, and we need to do this. And there were concerns raised where people said, is this really the best kind of guy we want to be having around at the moment? But ultimately, there was nothing formal found, and I think this is a civil service point here, that the Cabinet Office has this room called PET, which is the Propriety and Ethics Team, which is sort of the the physical embodiment of, you know, the Little Black Book or, you know, Francis Urquhart from House of Cards. PET came back and said there was nothing about Mr Pinscher to stop him being appointed, so he's appointed. And off we go down the tracks. Now, if we fast-forward a couple of months until... We've had the Faux Sue Gray report, uh, we'd had the fines for Boris Johnson and many around him. We then had the confidence vote, which was following the Jubilee service at St Paul's. And if you want the straw that broke the cameras back with Conservative MPs, remarkably, it was actually the booing outside. Does anyone remember the booing outside St Paul's Cathedral? I don't know if you were sort of booing at your TV as well, that way you might remember it, but it was almost sort of farcical at this level. But anyway... That was the point at which Conservative MPs thought, you know, to quote Suella Braverman, these people outside St Paul's Cathedral are not Guardian reading North London dwelling tofu munching and left wingers. You know, these are people camped outside to see the royal family and if they're booing a Conservative Prime Minister, you know, my political judgment might say you're in a little bit of trouble at that point. So you have the confidence vote and they get through the confidence vote but it was a bad result. A lot of MPs had voted against him and the feeling in Downing Street at that point was, God, let Nothing else go wrong. Now let's fast forward to the Carlton Club. And this club has a bit of a nefarious reputation. The Duke of Wellington once said, Never write a letter to your mistress and never join the Carlton Club, which are probably two good bits of life advice for anyone to follow um, if you're into that sort of thing. So um, that's the background to it. And at this night, it was a, a reception for the Conservative Friends of Cyprus. Thrilling. And Chris Pincher was at this event, and clearly, as he has since, he drank too much. And there was this corner of the Carlton Club called Cad's Corner, which was designed so Conservative MPs could sit and look up the dresses of women coming down the staircase. Um, As I told you, that's the kind of establishment that it was seen as. Anyway, things happened. Chris Pincher allegedly... Sexually abused and harassed a young parliamentary researcher at this point. A formal complaint was made the next day. And ultimately, at this point, the Downstreet operation completely bungled it. Their mm-hmm. response, much like Partygate, was not full and forthcoming. And as we now know, the end of it was, they kept saying these things that weren't true. And ultimately it came to a head when a couple of days later, Simon McDonald had gone on the radio, who was the former permanent secretary of the Foreign Office and said, basically Downing Street is lying. They are not telling the truth about what happened with Chris Pincher that was when the resignation started, and then we went into that final mad 24 hours, which is charted in the book, and the chapter called The Bunker, which really takes us into how the whole thing fell apart. So really, Pincher was just the final thing, it was the final reason the Downing Street operation wasn't working, MPs had had enough, they'd weathered enough, and the point is if you're Prime Minister, the number one electorate at the matter is your MPs, and Boris Johnson never really got that right, and you'd think, in retrospect, they maybe should have thought a bit more about that.
2: So before we come on to that final tsunami, I just want to, to take a moment to reflect on a different aspect of Johnson's premiership that arguably he was deemed to be more effective and certainly in his own mind uh, to have got things right, which is the response to the Ukrainian invasion. Why do you think his approach and his response to this was very clear-sighted, very forthright Lots of reports talking about him being very across the detail, getting out the maps of what the invasion patterns were, being very au fait with towns and villages all across Ukraine and what was going on. That seemed a very different kind of piece of work, as it were, compared to his general, slightly more, again, to use one of your words that you use in the, in the book, sort of slightly more lumbering attitude. So what was it about Ukraine that made him behave quite differently?
1: As we've just talked about, there's a lot that people can criticise about Boris Johnson's premiership and how he won it, regardless of your political persuasion, just on a kind of pure, you know, actually being good at running the country approach but with ukraine i think first of all the uk has always been a very strong supporter of ukraine i think in retrospect we could all say that after 2014 we should have acted much harder and much faster because that gave vladimir putin the the feeling he could therefore you know push harder and faster which resulted in the illegal invasion first of all there's a lot of credit has to go to a man called professor john bugh who is been the foreign Affairs Advisor, not just to Boris Johnson, but to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, and is still in Downing Street right now. And he is... Uh, one of the best historians and authors, I think, of this age. And he's written some excellent books. His biography of Clement Attlee is one of my all-time favourite political books. His book on Realpolitik, he was a disciple of Henry Kissinger, and he wrote a book about that, and he wrote a book about Castro. So You've got a seriously smart guy who is in there. And I think John Bew persuaded the Prime Minister of the importance of this battle for the liberal democratic values that we believe in in this country, and that the West believes in, Number two, that we could make a real difference, which we did. That we didn't just sit back and allow us to be carried on by the kind of the tide, which was, I guess, you could say, not quite appeasement of Putin, but was allowing Putin to get away with a sort of salami slicing of norms and values that could result in this situation. But I think for Johnson, he could see, you know, he has a very good sense of the zeitgeist. And I think when he met Vladimir Zelensky, there were, two, you know, in some respects, there are two sides of the same coin in terms of coming from a very unconventional political background. You know, President Zelensky was a comedian who played a president on a drama comedy show who then became a real president and is now obviously um, a complete hero and has shown amazing strength of character. And I think Johnson saw that. But I think the key thing was, was just the fact that it was such an egregious breach of what this country and what the West is going to stand for, that it was completely unequivocal about what we had to do and had to go for it. And also it allowed him to do one of his favourite things, which was to have a fight with the blob with the Westminster political establishment because everyone in the Foreign Office was saying, oh, we can't poke the Russian bear, we don't want to give lethal weaponry, we don't want to do this. And Johnson was just like, no, we're not doing that. And along with Ben Wallace, the defense secretary, pushed back against that. And obviously in retrospect was hugely the right decision. And I think when people are writing books about Boris Johnson in 50 years time, you know, the intrigue and the, all the ups and downs will still be there as well as the ignominious ending but they will look and say that ultimately, that was a big, massive call that he did get right. And now some critics will say, this was all done for expediency, this was all done because he was trying to rescue his reputation. I put that to every single person who I interviewed for this book, friend and for what have you, not a single person Showed any evidence or anything he'd said to do that. You can all take your own views. But I genuinely believe he did that because he thought it was the right thing to do, that Britain could make a real difference. And I think when the history is written, people will agree with that too.
2: So that brings us then to the final chaotic days. You must have been reeling at the speed and the scale of the resignations and how that. Really chaotic three, four days. Uh, I
1: had no grey hair before then. Um,
2: literally, nobody was left to appoint to a ministerial position but by the time they'd all sort of. It was like this kind of huge snowball effect. What was it like as a journalist to kind of watch this happening? And at what point did you think, that's it, he cannot go on as PM?
1: So I would try a football analogy here, but I will probably (laughs) offend any football in the fans by getting it wrong. So let me just say cup final, does that work? Yeah. Yeah, fine, good, okay. Boris Johnson always showed he defied the normal laws of political gravity. And you had to keep thinking at some point it's gonna kick in at some point. Enough is enough. You know, obviously, the moment when we realised the jig was up was when Sajid Javid resigned. And so I was sitting at my desk in the parliamentary press gallery, and we'd had those couple of days about the pincher thing, and Boris Johnson was doing this clip on BBC News that was the six o'clock news and I remember watching it on the TV in our office and at this point essentially Boris Johnson had lost confidence in his communications operation to get the message out and he decided to go on TV and just say it himself and the clip looked awful I mean it was like it was in a in a wood panel room it was hot and sweaty and was looking bothered and was getting irate and they pre-recorded it, it wasn't a live thing. And this was, the, this was just showed how weird this moment was. I was sitting there, and this clip came up, and there was this scream that came from next door, it was from the Guardian Room, because in the Parliamentary Press Gallery that's known as Burma Road due to its lovely um, atmospherics, all the offices are interconnected, and the office beside it was the Guardians, and it was, uh, Pippa Crearer, who had of course had been at the start of all this, had just sort of screamed and just said, oh my God, Sadger's quit. And so he turned away from the TV, hit on Twitter, and there it was, this letter. And I mean, at that point, I could see through the poor caption writers of the BBC news, because on the six o'clock news, it was, you know, PM apology. PM says, sorry for handling of Pinscher. But because it was pre-recorded, they couldn't just stop it. So then it suddenly just went to breaking and he and he's still waffling on at this point um, and watching it and then at that point and the caption says just in capital letters which you could just imagine somebody sort of bashing their head against a keyboard javid resigns And and then eventually they ended this awful clip and then goes back to the studio and says that and then literally three minutes later rishi sunak then obviously quits and at that point you're like right cup final time this is it this is going to be the end all my colleagues they all come flooding back and the atmosphere was electric at that point and it was kind of properly if if you imagine how the the no confidence votes of the 1970s when they were trying to live day by day that's exactly how you would have imagined it and at that point you know the resignations just started and sky news did a resignation ticker and it was you know sort of pound down weather down oh look resignations up at that point um, <laughs> because this was becoming this kind of rolling thing and then we went through the 24 hours where you know it was i think was 52 resignations at that point downing street goes into this bunker mentality and they and i mean i can start to go into a lot of detail on what happened but i would say that writing that as my political journalist that twelve thousand words that chapter is one of the favorite things that i've written the next day we have all the resignations that start to pile up we have boris johnson's the 1922 and then ultimately you know trying to fulfilled the government, and it just goes on and on until the final point, which is the most bonkers thing still, which is, of course, when he fired Michael Gove at 9 o'clock. You've gone through this day, and that morning, Michael Gove, who it was, is levelling up secretary. He was only out of it during the Liz Truss uh, interregnum, shall we say. <laughs> so Michael Gove um, goes to see Boris Johnson that morning, just before PMQ's prep, and he says, you know, look, Prime Minister, I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. Perfectly predicted what was going to happen. Lots of people are gonna resign, many more than you think. It's going to be really painful. You should just announce you're going now. You can set the terms of your departure, but it's not getting any better from you here. And Boris Johnson just goes, oh, well, thank you for knifing me twice in three years at that point, because so, of course, famously in 2016. And Boris Johnson tells him this amazing story, which is in a classic Johnsonian colourful thing. And he talks about this uncle he had, who was a planning officer in East Ham in London. And apparently this chaff, had not taken his meds one day and had gone into the, the town hall of East Ham with a shotgun and had like tried to shoot the place up and eventually was carted away to a mental health hospital in a straitjacket. And he said, that is me, Michael. That is how they're gonna have to take me out of here. <laughs> So throughout that day, this anger towards Mr Go festers. And he feels, he goes into PMQ, which was appalling. And I mean, the thing about the House of Commons is you all probably watch PMQs and think it's dreadful, punch-and-duty politics. But it is very, very important for measuring the political temperature. Who's up? Who's down? Who's, who's got the support of their party? And sitting through that PMQs, I remember turning to a, a journalist colleague of mine just saying, this is over. Because you could hear he didn't have the House. The Conservative MPs were silent and almost people were laughing at him, not with him. Anyway, so this goes on, and as I said, you've got the resignations continue, and it gets to the point about nine o'clock at night. And he decides to do one final act of, whatever you want to call it, uh, revenge. I think it's probably the best thing. So he rings up Michael Gove, uh, who's at home, having a glass of wine after a difficult day with some friends, and he picks up his phone, he sees several missed calls from Boris Johnson, several from the switchboard at Street. He rings him back and says, um, you know, hello, Prime Minister. Uh, How's it going? Um <laughs> really well, thanks. How about you? No. They didn't say that, you know, how's it going? And Boris said, he said, Mike, I'm gonna cut to the chase, you know. Um, I'm dispensing of your services. You're no longer required. And go, sort of goes, What? And he goes, So you're not resigning? And Boris Johnson goes, No, Mikey boy, it's you who's resigning. <laughs> and then that's it. And then he goes, Well, thank you very much. F- thank you very much, and puts the phone down and just turns to his room and goes, oh, well, poor old Boris has lost it. And that was the end, and here we are.
2: Well, that feels like a very good moment to both applaud Sebastian's recall of detail, but also to throw it out to everyone in the audience. Question number one there. Thank you very much. As a, a normal person, it's a little astounding that people in politics are prepared to brazenly lie and to tolerate other people lying. Is this because so many people have a legal background uh, in an adversarial system rather than <laughs> in, rather than an inquisitorial system, and is the person with the best argument rather than the person who is nearest the truth that wins?
1: I'm not sure I classify as a normal person to be able to answer your question there, but I do think that the fact is, Within politics, you've got a spectrum on this stuff. Right, you can have some some people who take a very puritanical view, and you have some who take a very practical view. You know, because I remember one advice to Boris Johnson says to me, you know, politician lies. Bear, in some respect, people say it comes with the territory. I think the thing is that what happened was you got this kind of cumulative effect about honesty and about motivation and i think that was where things got into a very difficult situation with mr johnson i think it's the rest of the world you know ultimately what do people want from politicians they want them to number one help improve their lives, you know, to give them the best opportunity. Number two, they want them to try and do a decent job of running the state, running the country. And I think people are relatively forgiving of errors, of lapses of judgment, if things are, if, if the truth is bent, if they feel they are delivering on those two. The issue when we got to the end of Mr Johnson was none of those were happening. I think you'll agree politicians do what politicians do. I have a slightly different view on some of this, which is, to what extent have journalists let the public down by failing to nail someone to the wall? So I get this question quite a lot, actually, having done these book events. And you're now about to get a full-thought defense of journalism, uh, <laughs> which is the three Ps. How do you know about them? Owen Patterson? that was all revealed by reporting in The Guardian about his lobbying efforts that created the Parliamentary Standards investigation. Partygate, that was all reporting on the Daily Mirror and ITV News that brought it in the public domain, that created the Sue Gray investigation. Pincher, that was all a result of the Sun newspaper, who published details about what had happened at the Carlton Club. All three of those things would not have happened were it not for journalists doing their job. And I think in that instance, that is the doing, holding politicians to account, helping the public. So I actually think, and you'll be shocked to hear me say this as a journalist of 12 years, we have some of the best journalists and some of the best journalism in the world. I've worked in America and seen a very different system of journalism. You know, the fourth estate in this country is pugnacious. It does get things wrong. Everyone gets things wrong. But the alternative to it, I think, is much worse.
0: Could we get some feel of the main points of the extra chapter that you're now going to have to write, <laughs> <laughs> in that Boris Johnson is no longer an MP, which you can't have quite envisaged at that point. Is he possibly able to get enough support to, to produce a split in the Conservative Party? How do you see the by-elections,
1: etc.? At the end of this book, I have a scene at the Queen's funeral All the former PMs come in, so John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. But then Boris Johnson arrives early, and in fact, you know, it should have been, obviously, David Cameron, Theresa May, had a couple more prime ministers since then as well, but he was basically out of order for whatever reason. And he comes in and is about to stride down Westminster Abbey, just like Winston Churchill did at the King's funeral, and this arm goes out in front of him to stop him. And if you watch it and you can see him queering at the steward, and that arm is a reminder that he's a member of a club that no one wants to join, from which there is no escape, and that is the ex-Prime Minister's Club. And there's only been two Prime Ministers in recent history who have come back from that. One was obviously Sir Winston Churchill, and the other was Harold Wilson. Both of them remained their party leaders while they were in opposition. Boris Johnson did not there is a general feeling that the caravan has sort of moved on and i think the events of the past couple of days have sort of confirmed that in a way and obviously there is always the arnold schwarzenegger as boris johnson said Asa la vista baby uh, which is you know that he will be back in some form and of course there was the cincinnatus analogy going back to his farm to plow until he was called back to to Rome. But I think my general view is that, as I said, things have moved on quite rapidly in Westminster, and we've seen those three Conservative MPs who are all very loyalist to Boris Johnson, Nadine Dorries, Nigel Adams, and the former Prime Minister announced that they're off. But I don't get a sense that it's much wider than that. And so I feel like, in a way, everyone is sort of focused on Rishi Sunak, the premiership, and the next election, which is a year away. 18 months away and enemies of Boris Johnson will breathe a sigh of relief. His supporters will say we was robbed and I guarantee you that debate will be going on probably for the rest of my life.
0: As we were watching things unfold, I was wondering, did Boris Johnson have any scope for manoeuvre or did he dive before he was pushed?
1: On resigning as an MP, you mean? Yes, because it seemed, why didn't he turn around and fight I think we will see the Privileges Committee report very soon, and I think that will answer your question. I think he probably looked at the report and felt there was maybe no way through. I mean, the fundamental thing is Boris Johnson is a fighter. If he could have found a way through, I'm sure he would have found a way through. But clearly he had looked at this and felt that it was only going to go in one direction. That's my sense of it. But I think when we see that report, that will answer it. And so one may have to assume from that that the report is pretty... Foolsome in where it's going in terms of its criticism. Otherwise, if he could have seen a way through, he might have just kept on going. I just wanted to sort of ask, so from your sort of perspective of interviewing different sources and that sort of thing, do you think that for both future governments and for the future of the Tory party, there is lessons learned from these sort of communication errors that made the Paterson debacle so much worse, that made Gate so much worse. Do you think that there is sort of need that they need to change from that? Or was it just a Johnson government problem? Really good question. I think when Rishi Sunak came in, his modus operandi has been to try and get government out of people's lives because you'll be shocked to hear this, but most people actually don't care that much about politics and don't want to hear about it every single night as we had throughout the Johnson era. I mean, I obviously did and do because I'm not a normal person, but I think ultimately the calculation they took, number one, They stopped the daily morning rounds. The morning round is this weird invention where a government minister gets up at 5.30 in the morning and does 19 interviews before 9 a.m. across regional radio, get beaten up by Piers Morgan, um, you know, go on BBC Breakfast, the Today program, all this kind of stuff. British United's government have stopped doing that. They send ministers out when there is something to say, but not just having a general commentator on, you know, whatever Meghan Markle is wearing this week or whatever question they ask you on these morning rounds. So I think actually there have been some lessons learned that pulling people away from politics it doesn't just leave a void that gets filled by the opposition it can actually work. that's the first thing the second thing is I think obviously you still see the anonymous quotes that's that's a part of politics Taylor's elders time but I think in a way there's been a general sense to not get engaged in briefing wars and I think to the question the lady was asking earlier you know throughout the past 48 hours of all the to's and fro's about the peerages and privileges and what have you there's been a lot of invective from the Johnson camp but the government is been very restrained I think actually it feels to me as if they've kind of said don't engage let's just focus on what we're doing and just say what we need to and then try and get on with it so I think they have tried to do that but ultimately we are about to hit a general election campaign the next year next 18 months that will be very interesting to see how media operates on that front because the next election is going to be a sort of almost you know battle to the death because for the tories they have to win they've got to get a majority because forming a coalition will be tough and it's the party's instinct to try and win a majority and for labor you know they feel they can taste power for the first time in a generation so that's going to be really really you know both sides going at it and it'll be interesting to see what they've learned from that era. Thank you very much. I was just wondering, you gave some good examples of holding individual politicians to account, but even in, you know, stories when you're maybe blowing a lid off something, you're still reliant on your sources, whether they be civil servants or Mm -hmm. other politicians, so do you feel that maybe there's a risk of, even though you're holding one individual to account, to an extent you're still conforming to the narrative of maybe a different faction of the party, or whichever your sources are, and how do you avoid being compromised by still having to be reliant on insiders from one wing or another when you're telling a political story. So essentially, this is all part of the skill of being a political journalist and then going back to the point I think I said earlier, You have to think about, why is this person telling me, what are they hoping to achieve, and is it accurate? Those three tests apply to any conversation, any source quote, whatever. What is their aim, you know, of their trying to get at? So when you're trying to write a story, and, you know, so the favourite thing the editors at the Financial Times used to ask me to write is is a mood sense of the Tory past. They love those kind of pieces for the FT weekend. And, I mean, it's a bit like whenever the news channels Vox pop someone on the street, you know, it's always sort of, you know, hanging around the weather spoons and it's the same sort of people always say the same sort of things. And it's similar in the Tory party, there are certain individuals who will always are always accessible, who will always answer the phone. I mean, a famous example of this was Andrew Bridgen, who's no longer in the Tory party, who seems to do nothing else but just, you know, answer the phone and say things. You've got to try and balance it out. And you know, if you take the Tory party, you can map it out. You can say you've got the pro-Johnson faction, the anti-Johnson faction, you've got the One Nation liberals. You've got the ERG Brexiters. You've got all that. So all you have to do is ring around, speak to different people, and then sort of think, well, hang on a minute. What is the actual, what is the mood here? What do I judge it as? And ultimately build up a reputation, either you're right or you're wrong. And if you eventually keep getting things right, then your editors and your readers will think that you're on the right course. But again, as with all these things, it's a bit like what we used to call shoe leather reporting, except it's more sort of shoe WhatsApp reporting maybe, where you just kind of keep going and you you keep speaking to people and you try and form a picture and you either get it right or you get it wrong and again, it's experience and level of contacts and all the typical journalism things. But it is tough, you know, and I've got plenty of things wrong as a journalist and I try to, you know, when you do get it wrong, you figure out, why did I get that wrong? Was I speaking to the wrong people? Was I not representative enough? Or was I being spun a yarn? And I've definitely written stories over the years where I was being spun a yarn.
2: Thank you so much for such a fantastic account of incredible period of time. That's been really, really fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank um, you everyone thank so much you. for
1: coming.
0: The fall of Boris Johnson, author Sebastian Payne and Joan Concanon. And this conversation was presented by the York Festival of Ideas. Big thanks to them and their wonderful team for this timely recording. I'm Natasha Mitchell, and you can follow Big Ideas on the ABC Listen app, your front row seat to some of the best events, debates and discussions from festivals around the world. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for your company.